celebrate the launch of David Rothkopf's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Roscoff, coming to you from New York City. Because it's that time of the week, we're joined again by Simon Rosenberg, our co-host. Simon is president of NDN and the New Policy Institute, and no doubt still basking in the glow of last week's achievements, or have you already started to worry about the next challenges, Simon? Today, David, I think we're all um, feeling the, the emotion of Nancy Pelosi and her retirement remarks just a few minutes ago. Big day here. and in the country and in democratic politics. Well, I'm going to ask you about that in one minute and talk about the departing generation before we talk about the new generation. But we want to talk about next generation politics today. And we are joined by John Della Volpe, who is the director of polling at the Harvard Kennedy School of Institute of Politics and the author of Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. Hi, John. It's great to be with you, David. Good to see you. Simon, we not only had uh, Nancy Pelosi's remarks, which had been long expected, but we also have an announcement that Steny Hoyer is stepping down from the leadership, which means we're going to get a whole reset on the Dem leadership at a very sensitive moment, at a moment when, you know, I read a lot about people talking about Republican control of the House, but if the Republicans end up with 220, you know, two, three people switch and the Democrats control whatever the issue is. So you need deft leadership in that situation. Do you think it's going to happen and how's that going to look? I think what Nancy said today and the way she said it was very, very important. And it's actually setting up our conversation with John very well, which is that, you know, we are in the midst or in the beginning of a very significant generational turn in the Democratic Party. In the next five years, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and many other leaders, Nancy Pelosi, who we've all gone, you know, come to know, will be, you know, will be passing the baton to a new generation. And I think one of the things that happened in this election is that we should have greater assurance that that passing of that baton over the next five years or so is going to be successful. I mean, the next Democratic Party that's coming 
you know, when you look around at Hakeem Jeffries, who's likely to be the next Democratic leader in the House, and Gretchen Whitmer and Cory Booker and Gavin Newsom and make your own list of whatever, you know, these, the next 20 or 30 leaders, these are very, very capable and strong uh, people. And I think that for me, I'm I'm worried about the gen- any time there's a generational handoff, right, there's always risk involved. But I feel that the party is strong and that we are in good hands in the next in the coming years. And that in, in many ways, I will tell you that having been doing this for 30 years, I think the next generation of leaders coming up in the Democratic Party are better than even the ones that we've had, frankly, over the last 25 years. So I really am pleased and just hats off to Nancy, right? I mean, incredible leader, done so much, also just an incredibly good human being. I mean, I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time with her. And she would always ask me about my kids. She remembered their names, right? I mean, she's just an incredible person. And so thank you, Nancy, for everything that you did. I totally agree, by the way. First of all, that Nancy Pelosi is a remarkable woman and certainly the most consequential legislator of our time and speaker of the House in many, many, many decades, and a really deeply good human being, cares about her family, cares about the people around her, maintains high values. And uh, she's going to be very, very difficult to replace. But the bench, and particularly the younger bench, and particularly the the folks you mentioned, and I, you know, we could mention Josh Shapiro and a bunch of others, is a better bench than we've had in a long, long time. Driving a lot of this is going to be the emergence of Gen Z voters. From that perspective, how do you look at this generational change, John? I see a generation. I see two generations actually. I think about the, the what we now have is a Gen Z and a millennial alliance essentially you know we're talking about voters under the age of 40 they in the next cycle in 2024 i think they're likely to to be 40 percent of the overall electorate and i think that sometimes the way in which they may go about their politics might be different but there is a shared set of values that extends from i think millennials through generation z a generation which is still not yet fully over the age of 18 and able to and able to vote and been looking at this for 22 years now right 100,000 interviews countless hundreds of focus groups and by now you've probably <laughs> met all of them right? <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of time I feel like I'm like embedded with them right between like my kids the students and the survey work but uh well that's what gives me hope but there's also this sense of interest in a robust government to solve the systemic challenges that this generation is now facing, right? Around inequality, around systemic racism, around access to education, et cetera. So I think the time is right, you know, for kind of the, to see greater levels of representation across that Democratic bench that you talked about, just as as Gen Z and millennials are really beginning to thrive in terms of a significant cohort within the electorate. Well, let me ask you one more question, Simon, that turns on the issue of of the House, and then we'll talk more about upcoming elections and the role of this group, because I see a essential tension. If the Republicans have 220 seats and Democrats have 215 seats, then the Democrats have, you know, as I said earlier, I get a little frustrated when I see people talking about Republican control of the House, because, you know, to me, it's kind of good luck with that. Whoever has the most votes has control of the House, and there are a whole host of issues from climate to Ukraine to budget issues 
where the Democrats are more likely to be able to pull together 220 people than the Republicans are. But the swing is at the center. And so the positions that could appeal to centrist Republicans are going to have a lot more credence. You know, the Problem Solvers Caucus, as it, as it named itself, looms large in this calculus. But the trend within the party, the rise of Gen Z, the issues that seem to resonate in the last election, tend to be a little bit more progressive as I see them. And that's, you know, I mean, I'm one of those people that believes that Democrats win when the center and progressives come together, not one or the other. But there does seem to be some kind of a a tension, at least for the next couple of years, between the sort of more old school compromise, find the center approach, which might work in the House and therefore get something done in the Congress, and this trend in the country. How do, how do you see that, Simon? It's a complicated question, David. And my answer, I worry, would um, take too long. And I would rather come back to it after we hear from John about what happened with young people in the election, because then that will actually inform, help inform the answer that I will give you. So I'm going to do an artful thing here and say, hey, John, Given that your poll before the election, I, I have two questions for you, if I can turn to you as somebody who did the first poll of millennials ever by a democratic by a democratic organization back in 2005. I did a poll with Morley Wintergrad and Mike Hayes, who you know, wrote one of the first books about millennials back in the, in the day. In fact, they used my polling as the core of their first book in, in 2007 that they wrote about millennials. What happened? I mean, you did a great poll. I mean, your poll for me, when I was trying to formulate my understanding of the election, that poll was important to me because it was consistent with a lot of other very positive polling we were seeing when this whole question about what was really happening in the election. We had very good Hispanic polls. You dropped this terrific poll. It was very encouraging for Democrats. You know that the exit polls and the AP vocast data is not in, in total sync, right, about what happened with 18 to 29-year-olds. But tell us what happened. Well, thank you, Simon. And the story, I think, is in two polls. So for 22 years, every semester we do a poll. I work with 25 undergraduates. I'm kind of tapping into the kind of their curiosity in terms of the questions they want to know and developing a survey instrument from that, of which we ask, you know, a couple thousand young Americans using a probability-based sample. So we've been doing that for, for more than two decades now. The more interesting poll, I think, is the poll from the spring of 2022. Because what that poll said is, despite the fact that President Biden's job approval rating had seen a double-digit decrease, despite the fact that what is often the leading indicator of interest in participating in elections and turning out, all those indicators were down in terms of the efficacy of political engagements. They had risen for a couple of years during the 2017 Trump era, but we saw those dissipate. Despite those two factors, we still saw that 34, 35% of eligible 18 to 29-year-olds indicated that they would definitely be voting in the spring. And that was tracking similar uh, timeframe from 2018. So the question I had at that point is, for Gen Z, is it possible for this generation to hold two seemingly competing thoughts in their head at the same time? Can they believe that politics isn't 
working properly. It's not solving the challenges that they see in front of them. And at the same time, be willing to participate in that. That's something that millennials generally didn't abide. If they felt like politics wasn't working, they were less likely to vote. As you, as you know, the participation among 18 to 29-year-olds barely ever got over 21% overall all the last couple of decades. So that was what was interesting. Before Dobbs, before the record-setting level of legislation and accomplishments, I think, from this administration in the summertime, young people, specifically Gen Z, were already interested in voting. Then we saw in October, essentially, that number stabilize and increase. And the way in which it increased is what I think we've seen reflected in the exit polling, which is we saw a tremendous uh, amount of intensity, both voting as well as for Democrats among young women, specifically young women on college campuses. So to me, I looked at the spring poll. I looked at the registration data, the Kansas data, the early voting data. We had our poll. And I felt like collectively, it was a pretty compelling picture, not unlike the picture I saw in 2018. So Simon, you have another question that I know because of the way you dumped out of my question. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, maybe you can ask that. And then when we come back, when at, when John's done, then I will go back to you and not allow you to dump out of it a second. John, I do have another question, which is talk about what we know so far about the share. For example, in Arizona, in the exit polls, 18 to 29-year-olds were 56 points Democratic. AP Vocast, it was substantially less. I mean, what's your take as, at, on the early data that we're getting about the performance of Democrats, not just the turnout, but the performance of Democrats in these places? Simon, David, the way, the way you know, I think about this country, obviously, it's, it's divided nearly equally 50-50. But I think it's more accurate to think about these divisions based upon 40, under 40, over 40. Specifically, when you look at the the Edison exit polls, which is where I spent most of my time because it, frankly, seems to be far more correlated with the other high-quality polling, including our own at the Institute of Politics, I see that Republicans won the over 40 vote by a solid 10 points. Okay, So the degree to which folks were predicting a red wave, they were talking to folks over the age of 40. Whether that was a wave or not, they certainly did better than they did in 2018. The difference maker in this election are the millennials and Gen Zers, Americans under the age of 40. Collectively, this group voted Democrat by 20 points during my last calculation. These things will be updated, but 18 to 18 to 20 points with a lot of the energy similar to 2020, similar to 2018, coming from that 18 to 29-year-old cohort. You talked about 56 plus point margin in Arizona, close to 50 points in Pennsylvania. Not to not to overlook sixty four points in Nevada, right? Not, you know, like we, we 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 those are outstanding numbers, right? In any other year, they just they just kind of fail in some comparison relative to Kelly and Fetterman. Overall, on a national basis, when we looked at the House exit polls, Democrats won by twenty eight points, sixty three thirty five, as I recall. Well, John, isn't it true that in some of those states, the you know, like in Arizona, if those numbers hold, if those become the known numbers. Those are the biggest spreads we've ever seen with 18 to 29-year-olds, right? I don't think we've had 56-point gaps in major Senate races before. I mean, it's if that's really ends up being the final number, right? It's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. It, we're, and we're not talking about a relatively small subgroup of the electorate. We're talking about a generation, Simon, right? You know, going back 22 years, the high watermark was 
Obama in 2008 at the general election got 66%. And perhaps he pushed, you know, close to 70 in, in some, probably the non-battleground states. It's been a while since I've looked at that. But no, these are extraordinary numbers. And they're, and they're being driven by, I think, this kind of combination of negative partisanship, right? And concerns about choice and rights and freedoms. But also, I think there's just been a tremendous amount of really good work done under the radar for lots of people about telling the story of the Biden and the Democrats record, honestly, right? Without those two components, I think we, we're looking at a very different outcome. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded is a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. It examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the United States. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive? Because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You, you say it's a generation, and you say not all of them are voting yet which means there'll be more of them voting in two years. And there is a clear narrative within the Democratic Party right now that Gen Z played a big role for all the reasons you guys were just talking. Describe how much more important it's going to be in two years. Well, in two years, it will be, by definition, more young people, which means also more people of color, Basically, the way I look at it is you could almost blind pull, okay, young voters under 30. Because for Joe Biden, and this gets back to the other question you talked about earlier, uh, David, around compromise. But Joe Biden won those five battleground states of Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin by an average of 20 points among that under 30 vote. Just like Democrats did in each of those states this year, they lost the votes of folks over the age of 45. And that's with Joe Biden running. So the degree to which every single year, an older American who has generally conservative values will be replaced by a couple of younger people who are more diverse and have a different set of values. And those values align much more closely with the current version of the Democratic Party. Now, the question is, and I think that like it's easier to answer that question today than it was a couple of years ago. Are there systems in place to welcome those folks into the party and begin to kind of connect those values with the uh, with their leaders who are who are likely to represent them? Well, Simon, let me ask that question to you. You and I talked about you know this over the course of the past couple of years, and there was a pre prevalent narrative, which was young voters don't vote. If only the young voters would vote. That was really what people talked about. Now. You know, the page is turned. Now these voters are decisive. How does that change the calculus for everybody? Well, this is a really important question. And as somebody who pioneered both bilingual 
polling for the Democratic Party 20 years ago, and then I did the first set of polls of millennials, and, and I articulated in 2005 that there was a new electorate that the right candidate who could speak to that new electorate could win a presidential election, and we ended up getting that right candidate in 2008. And so I've been working on these things for 20 years, and I will tell you that what is still true in our party is that younger voters are still at the kids' table for the most part and at a strategy level. The central reason why is because it's harder to talk to them. And that, and what I mean by that is they're post-television and the way our entire campaign structure is set up to a great degree is still around a television model. And the consultancy and how we pay consultants for viral videos and organic media, this is still a thing we have not made as a party, despite the centrality of this issue for us, the centrality of this vote for us, we still haven't made the generational turn in the way that we run our campaigns. It's my hope after this election and with the ascendant, you know, with the generational wheel beginning to turn, that you're going to see and uh, much more of the kind of things that we need to do to make that connection that John was talking about and bring folks into the Democratic Party. Tara, who's one of our co-hosts, who's not here today is actually a major proponent of this kind of work. And she believes that the company she's running, Courier Newsroom, is actually designed in part to talk to these younger folks who may not be super interested in politics. It's not important enough. It's still, to me, in meetings that I am in with politicians in our party, it's still seen as kind of the kids' table. I'm, one of the reasons I, John, I think, has been really important is that John's been an ambassador, I think, and a, a, been very persuasive to many in our party about putting this at the center of our politics and not at the fringes of it, right? As I tweeted the other day, it, we're now at the point where younger voters have to be at the very center of everything we do, not on the periphery. We shouldn't have been at that point 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever it is. But now we have no choice and we really have, we have to do it. And, and so I want to applaud John. I mean, John and I don't really know each other that well, but he's had an incredible impact on the leaders of, of, the, of not just the country and understanding this, but he's, his work has, I think, really been very persuasive with many Democrats to take all this far more seriously because of the integrity and the quality of the work that he does. And so, you know, hats off to you, John, frankly, for, I think, having been a really good teacher, not just of your students, uh, but of an entire, you know, political ecosystem back here in, in D.C. That's it's awfully place. kind. Thank you, Simon. But, you know, I mean, Simon's clearly a trailblazer because he did the first poll of the post-Civil War generation. Thanks, David. Yeah. Thanks, David. No, that no, it was an important it was an important poll. But as you noticed, John, Simon had no respect for my question earlier. And he just he did that Washington thing and that I'm not going to answer your question. Instead, I'm going to answer the question I want to answer. But I want to ask you the question, because it seems to me there's an inherent tension. This group deserves attention. They're going to be more important, but the, the you know that old, that older group and 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 sort of the centrist, the more centrist elements within the party, are also going to be important. Do you see that as attention, or is this group more complicated? And should we not pigeonhole it as being sort of reflexively more progressive? I think the 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 term progressive means many different things based upon where you sit and what generation you're part of. And I'll tell you that I was probably the most confident 
about Democrats' chances in 2019, when I look at fall 2019 polling at Harvard, where our students asked a, a series of questions and essentially kind of the two-way question, who do you prefer to be president? Someone who um, doesn't compromise, who has a vision, it doesn't stop until that vision is accomplished, but it could take years without progress, or someone who has a vision but accepts incremental change. Like I'm paraphrasing, okay? But that was essentially kind of the question. And we found that the generation was roughly split 50-50. And that when I took that lens, as well as Democrats within the generation, slightly more, slightly fewer were interested in compromise, but still, this generation has an urgency that I haven't felt in other generations. And they're willing to, to work and to compromise as long as they continue to see progress. So when I was at Harvard, not engaged in the 2020 primary, I was confident that someone like Pete or someone ultimately like Biden had more youth vote to earn because of the way in which they approach politics. Once the campaign ended, I took a leave from uh, from Harvard. And Simon, by the way, the Biden campaign really deserves a credit, I think, for modernizing the way we conduct research in presidential campaigns, right? With Anzalone and Celinda, who were incredible on the battle state on the battleground states, but then they opened up, right? They opened up that room to people like me and to people like Barreto on, on uh, Latino Hispanics and to Silas, right, on African Americans, and it was collective that uh, under that we're able to get you know dive deep into the, each of those segments. But what we saw was that while the path to those ultimate visions might be different. The values were aligned. And that's what was enough for young people to turn out in record numbers in 2020 and to support President Biden 60% under 30. The only person who, who's ever done higher than that in the modern era was Obama the first time in 66, So with 66%. So I, yes, there's a tension, but as long as we can communicate that we're making progress, that keeps people in the fight, that gives them something a receipt to encourage someone else to um, to turn out to vote as well. I think that tension is okay. This is the point in the show where we take a little bit of a break. And uh, the people who are listening who are not members, we say thank you to, and we hope you come back soon. And the people who are listening who are members who get to listen to more, we say stand by, you can listen to more. And that'll start with Simon in one second. <laughs> 